26, and we're going to read from verse 1 to the end. God is renowned in Judah. In Israel, his name is great. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords, the weapons of war. You are radiant with light, more majestic than the mountains rich with game. The valiant lie plundered, they sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift up his hands. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. It is you alone who are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounced judgment, and the land feared and was quiet when you, God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land. Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfil them. Let all the neighbouring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. He breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by the kings of the earth. It's now time for uh, our sermon this morning, and I've titled it Under Siege, Where Will You Turn? Yes, there, that's easy. As to Under Siege, Where Will You Turn? And uh, if you've got your Bibles there, then you'll see that it doesn't actually tell us exactly when this psalm was written. Some of them, the opening line that's there, is, it gives us a clue, but this one doesn't. It just says, for the director of music with stringed instruments, so it's a good week to have guitars. Um, a psalm of Asaph, who was a worship leader and priest, and a family of worship leaders and priests, and a song. That's it. But a number of people think the first three verses give us a clue as to what was going on. So it says here, God is renowned in Judah, which was down in the south. In Israel, in the north, his name is great. So in the whole country, he's known. His tent is in Salem, which is short for Jerusalem, the capital city. His dwelling place is in Zion, the hill that Jerusalem was on. And there it says, he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords, the weapons of war. And some people think that because of that, it was a time when Jerusalem was surrounded by a big army, that actually they were besieged, that there seemed to be no hope. But in an instant, God brought the siege to an end. And although it doesn't say for certain, a number of people think it's an 8th century siege by a guy called Sennacherib, who was an Assyrian. If you want to know more about it, you can read the story for yourselves. We're not going to cover it in detail this morning. Isaiah covers it. Kings covers it. And Chronicles covers exactly the same thing. So Isaiah, Kings, and Chronicles all have um, that on there. I think actually it's going to be small this morning. It may be difficult to see some of the readings, but I think we'll be all right. Um, what happened was the land was invaded by the Assyrian army. It was absolutely huge, at least, in fact, more than 185,000 soldiers and more than a couple of thousand horses from the information we're given. So it was a huge invading army. And the Assyrians invaded and surrounded Jerusalem, having taken over all the other towns, and were ready to invade the city and conquer it. And it looked like there was no chance for the people of Judah. It looked as if they were going to be completely overrun by this huge invading army. And the guys running the army were extremely confident they were going to win. I don't know if you're ever in school and you played in a sports team. I played rugby, which looks unlikely now, I know, and hockey for my school. They were the two sports that I played. 
And there was sometimes a time where you'd turn up and the opposition were one short. Do you remember that? And the coach would be like, this isn't going to be much of a game, so you can have, and they would pick someone off your team to swap sides. Well, the Assyrians were so confident in this battle, they actually yelled over the wall, if you can find 2,000 people to ride them, you can borrow 2,000 of our horses just to make this more interesting. Because otherwise it's going to be very dull for us. So if you can find 2,000 people, I don't think you can. But if you can, you can have them. It'll be more of a contest. But then they made a terrible mistake. Let me read you what they then did as they were yelling over the walls. King, the king of the time was called Hezekiah. And he was a pretty good king of Judah. And they said, the guy, the commander yelled out, Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says... The Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hands? Let me just say that was a grave error on his part. Because at that moment, he insulted the God of the Bible. And Hezekiah was a good and godly king. And he decided to get together the guys he knew who were the most godly in the land. Some of you have heard of a guy called Isaiah the prophet. He called on him. One of Asaph's descendants, he called on him. He said, we're going to pray for this land. Isaiah, you're going to pray to God. I'm going to pray to God. And as they were praying, God spoke to Isaiah. And he said these words to Isaiah the prophet. He said, therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. And so Isaiah made that pronouncement. And this huge army was gathered outside. And then God himself took them down. Isaiah writes this. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria, and stayed there. It was an amazing victory, and God's people did nothing. They were simply besieged by an overwhelming enemy, and in a moment, it was defeated. The writer to Chronicles adds this little commentary at the end. It says, So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the land of Sennacherib king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. I love that line. Sometimes people think the God of the Old Testament is very different to the New. Isn't that a lovely line? He took care of them on every side. And then it says, many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. And although we don't know for sure you can probably see how the psalm that James read to us fits with that. That in a moment, he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords. They're all mentioned in the build-up to the battle. That they were armed with these things and they were broken. And then verse 11 says, 
Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. And at the end of this account, the neighboring nations are bringing gifts and honoring the God who did this to the Assyrians. Now, you might think, well, that's fine for you, Neil. You're a history sort of buff. You did history a million years ago at Bristol University. You used to be a history teacher. You know, this kind of thing is fascinating for a guy with your disposition. Uh, but what does it actually mean for us? Why should we be bothered by an 8th century BC battle? You know, kind of 10,000-year-old history. Well, here's the thing. There are times in our lives, I think, where we feel completely besieged. Where actually the problems that we face are just mounting up and up and up. Some of those problems might be to do with our health. It may just be that everything seems to be going wrong. I know for some that are older, you've got almost a permanent list of appointments, and you bounce from one to the next, the next, the next. It's health that's the thing. And you're besieged by health problems. For others, it's relational. You can never get all the ducks in a row. You've just sorted something out with one of the children, and another one's kicking off, and it's not going well. Or it's always scratchy in your marriage. You just about managed to get it to work, and then you're at each other again, and you feel like you're getting nowhere. You're just besieged relationally. For some of you, it's financial. You just managed to get things paid off, debts clear, house lined up, and then the next thing comes and just takes your knees out from under you. You think, where did that come from? It just doesn't seem fair. And sometimes it's not just one thing. It's one thing after another after another. My uncle became a Christian in his 40s. I think he's he in his 40s or 50s when he became a Christian. Before that, we used to go on holiday with him sometimes. And I always remember him saying, trouble always comes in threes. We often went on boating holidays and things often went wrong. And it often, two things would go wrong. And he'd be looking for the third. That's a small siege. But it's coming. And I think at times in our lives, we just feel like everything's out of control. Our problems are mounting up and up and up. We can't see a way out. We wonder if we've trusted in God, why is life so hard? Why is it so difficult? If he's really for us and not against us, if he really loves us like he says that he does, why is it so hard? You know, the day before the angel of the Lord went out, imagine waking up in Jerusalem, you're surrounded. The whole country's been overrun. You're the last left. The army's huge. They're just mocking. Wouldn't your heart be in your boots? Wouldn't you worry if you were going to die? If you didn't die, weren't you worried what they were going to do to you, to your children, to your grandchildren, if they got in through those walls? The Assyrians were brutal. That's what you're facing there. And I think in our hearts, we know some of that same battle to really trust God when life's really hard. To really believe he's going to come through for us when actually we don't see his hand at work. And we just see the problems, the armies mounting up around us and the darkness closing in. And there's no way out. We're trapped. If you feel like that here this morning, or maybe you're praying for someone in that situation, I think psalms like this are written to just reassure us and give us hope. And there's just two things I want to bring out of this psalm here this morning. And the first one is, uh, well, and actually, yeah, the first one is going to be, um, don't be afraid, God will defeat all our enemies. And then the second point seems contradictory, be afraid, because God will oppose all, uh, will defeat all who oppose him. 
So do and don't be afraid. You know, this thing about feeling besieged is nothing new. There's a wonderful bit in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul where he's writing to a church and he wants them to understand how tough life's been for him and for those sharing the gospel. And he says this, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the death sentence. You see, Paul just saying, all of my problems have mounted up so much. There's pressure beyond what I can endure. I even despaired of life itself. I just wished I wasn't here anymore. I'm guessing some of us have reached that point before in life where it just feels like it would be better if we weren't here. And Paul then says it felt like we'd received the death sentence. And then he goes on with these words to say, but this is what I realized in the midst of that. He says, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. And so as we approach this today, it's to reset our minds and our hearts to say we can trust this God who has promised to deliver us. And he never breaks his promise. He always keeps his word. And so these two things today, I hope, will point us in that direction. Firstly, don't be afraid. God will defeat all our enemies. So the psalmist carries on in verse 4. You're radiant with light, more majestic than mountains rich with gain. The valiant lie plundered. They sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift up his hands. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. So the psalmist describes the end of this army, and then he just basically hammers it home for us, that this was a valiant army and it was defeated. First, he describes God. He says, you're radiant with light. Enter this real darkness that we were facing. That amazing light that God alone can bring came. And you're more majestic. You're a greater king than a mountain that's covered with rich game. I love this image. It's not one I would have ever thought of. I might have thought of the mountain. But in my mind, the mountain is immovable and it's big and it's strong. But they're kind of, for me, often bleak places. I've probably been to the wrong mountains. Maybe you've been to some very life-filled mountains. Uh, but for me, they're snow-covered, and there's not much there. But, you know, they're impressive, and they're beautiful, particularly if the sun rises or sets on them. But the psalmist goes, no, no, it's not like that. It's a massive mountain, and it's majestic, and it's fantastic, but it's covered in game. If you were there, there's so much to eat. Who doesn't like Kentucky Fried Chicken? It's running with it. Just an amazing picture of God's goodness. It's covered in it. And so the psalmist is saying, as you come to this God, he's strong and he's mighty and he's just full of life. And he wants to share it. He wants to give that life away. But here's the thing. If you come against him, if you come against this great God, well, what happens? The valiant those amazing Assyrian soldiers that had wiped every other nation off the map and brought them to heel, those soldiers, well, they lie plundered. Their swords, their shields, everything they brought with them, ready to be taken. They sleep their last sleep. They're not getting up again. They're all dead. 
Not one of them can even now lift their hands. These mighty men who killed hundreds and thousands of other people, they can't even lift their own arms. At your rebuke, just at the sound of his voice, God of Jacob, God of our ancestors, both horse and chariot, the tanks, lie still. That's where the psalmist begins, you see. That's the first bit of hope he gives to people like us when we're feeling besieged, that the enemies that we face will be totally defeated. Now, we don't necessarily need to look back to the siege of Jerusalem to see that. When we want to look back and see and gain confidence, we look back to a different event, also in Jerusalem. It was a time when our God came and visited us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it appeared he was totally defeated by his enemies. Do you remember? As his life came to an end, despite all the miracles he'd done, despite all the good he'd done, it seemed as if the whole world had turned against him. His friends even, his closest friends, one betrayed him, one denied him. And lone and friendless, carrying his cross, he climbs up the hill of Golgotha. And as he does, they mock him, they taunt him. They laugh at him as he goes there. And then they nail him to the piece of wood he has been carrying. And they hoist him up naked for the whole world to laugh at him. And in that moment, our God seems utterly defeated, besieged by enemies on every side. Lone and friendless, he's climbed the hill, utterly humiliated. And darkness covers the whole of the land. And it seems to all those observing that God's judgment is falling. Not only does he have no friends, not only is the whole world against him, God himself, heaven himself, has turned against him and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was never a bleaker moment in the history of humanity. Never a moment when it seemed as if all would be lost. And yet, just before he dies, the darkness lifts. All of the wrath of God has been poured out and absorbed by him. All the punishment for sin has been laid on him and he's paid for it all. And he yells out, it is finished, done. The connection between Jesus Christ and his father reestablished the price for sin paid. You don't have to wait three days later to believe. You can believe then. The Roman centurion who executes him says, surely, that there, that is the Son of God. It's an amazing transformation. And the Apostle Paul says, what does it mean? What does it mean for us that that happened? He says this in Colossians, he forgave all our sins. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Every wrong thought, every sinful action, every time we break a promise, every time we're too lazy to do the right thing, every time we're greedy, every time we're lustful, every time we let down God and others, he paid for it. 
and the legal charge that stood against us is nailed to his cross. And then he carries on, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In that moment, sin and Satan, the very forces of hell, are on flesh that so often does the wrong thing. All of that power was broken. The penalty was paid, and the enemies were defeated. And although today life is hard, and we feel besieged, and there are times when our problems seem big, and our fear is massive, and our anxieties are overwhelming, when we look to the cross, when we remember what Jesus did for us, it helps us to remember again that ultimately we have nothing to fear. They were defeated at the cross, and one day Jesus Christ will return. No longer as someone who is mocked and despised, but as the King of glory. And when he comes, what will it be like? Well, the last book of the Bible says this. We're going to live in the new Jerusalem. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. When our problems feel overwhelming, when life is really hard, as it is for some of you right now, we look back to the cross and we remember the victory Jesus has won. And we look forward and we remember that one day all those things that grieve us, all those things that drag us down, will be no more. And we will be with him forever. And when the battle is intense and it's tough, when it's hard just to keep going for Jesus, psalms like this are written to help us to remember a day is coming when everything will change and we will see Christ reign as king. Secondly, the second half of the psalm, though, is a bit different. If the first part's full of praise, the second part is different. Let's look at those verses together. I'm going to emphasize one word, all right, which I want you to notice. It says here, uh, the second thing we're going to think about today in those verses is this. Be afraid, because God will defeat all who oppose him. It says here, you alone are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you're angry? From heaven you pronounce judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. When you, God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land, surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Make vows to the Lord and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. He breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Do you see? So we're saying as God's people we can be confident, but there is a God here who's to be feared. In fact, where it says in verse 11, bring gifts to the one to be feared, the actual literal translation is bring gifts to the fear. That's like God's name. 
So if God was wrestling, and it's the only sport he participates in in the Bible, so don't be sniffy about wrestling. If you want to know where, I'll tell you later, but he does. He's a participant in wrestling. His name would be the fear. And that's a very different way that we often think about God. He's the one to be feared. He is the fear. But it says why here, doesn't it? Verse 7 says, it's you alone who are to be feared, not this vast army, not all the problems that we face, you. In the end, you're the one to be feared because who can stand before you when you're angry? You know, there's a sort of human wrath, isn't there? I think people thought that about Adolf Hitler when he was taking over Europe. My granddad was there on the first day of the war in Krakow on national service and Blitzkrieg hit the town where he lived. It was just as the children were coming out of school. Deliberately timed to create panic. My grandfather was driving a tank. He said the soldiers were just out trying to get women and children anywhere safe and the bombs were just falling around. There's a wrath, isn't there, that you just feel like we're not going to be able to stand against this. But ultimately, the thousand-year right lasted 12 years. God brought down Adolf Hitler. But there isn't anyone who will stand before the God that we worship, the real, living, true God. No one has the strength to stand before his anger. The Bible, in the end, describes a battle where all the forces of evil are mass and they stand before God and in one verse, he wipes them out. There isn't collective strength. There isn't individual strength. That's the point at the end of the psalm, the final verse, where it says he breaks the spirit of rulers. He's feared by the kings of the earth. The most powerful people will not stand before God. No one can stand before God his anger. So who should fear him? You should fear him if you don't love him with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. If you don't always love others as much as you love yourself. If there are things that you've done wrong in your life that you're conscious of cause harm to others. In one sense, we all begin life as his enemies. We all begin in that place under his wrath. We're all numbered among those who will not stand. We won't be able to make our case or escape from his judgment. When he rises up to judge, we will be found guilty. And yet this psalm does say there's an alternative. Did you see that? It says there's an alternative to that judgment. Where does it come? Revelation describes the one who will do the judging. This psalm says it's God. Look what Revelation says. Revelation says about the one who comes to judge, his name is the word of God. Most of us know who that is, don't we? The word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's talking about Jesus. The armies of heaven, that's where the judgment comes from. We're following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth 
is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The one who will come to judge is Jesus Christ. Don't be mistaken, Jesus, for someone you can just work your way around, for someone weak. He is King of Kings, he's Lord of Lords, and he will judge us. He's God Almighty. But within this psalm is also the hope that we need. Because it says, from heaven you pronounce judgment. That's what Jesus will do. The land feared and was quiet. When you, God, rose up to judge. We've just seen that's Jesus. But why does he rise up to judge? To save all the afflicted of the land. He's saving even as he judges. Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise. Well, why? The survivors of your wrath are restrained. Who's going to survive? Well, verse 11 tells us. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. Do you see this very God who should despise us, whose wrath should be poured out on us, is the very God who invites us to turn to him and worship him and bring our lives to him as an offering. I think it's amazing in this psalm, it says, wherever you're from, whichever nation you're from, even if you're a Syrian, come on in. Even if you're an enemy, come on in. Bring your life before me and offer your gifts to me. Fulfill your vows to me. So if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, if you're here this morning and you're wondering, am I still under the wrath of God? What do you do? You turn to Jesus Christ. You look to that cross where he died and you say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God. That one day you will come as judge and king and I will see you. And left to my own record, I will be found rightly guilty and separated from you and all that is good forever. That is what my life deserves. But you died for me. You took my place. The punishment that I deserved was put on that cross, and as darkness came over the land, I contributed to that darkness, but you took it from me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me all my sin. Cleanse me. Make me yours. I promise to live my life for you. Then I might spend eternity with you forever. You can do that even here this morning. And for those of us who have done that, we still stumble and sin, don't we? But he paid the price for it all. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And you may have problems mounting up right now. You may not be able to see a way out or a way through. But let me tell you this. In an instant, your life will be changed. The God you trust in will deliver you. Some of those deliverances are temporary. We get better sometimes when we're sick, even miraculously. We need something desperately, and it feels like God isn't going to come through, and then he does. He does. 
And those are wonderful things, and we celebrate those. But you know what? You may have 185,000 problems on your plate right now. And in an instant, they'll all be in the rearview mirror. They'll be fallen, unable to rise again. And you'll see the king face to face. And you know the most amazing thing? He'll be pleased to see you. He'll be delighted to see you. Because he went to that cross that you might spend all eternity with him. That's the hope. When you're under siege, which way will you turn? Will you look in and try and fight your way out? Will you look to others and see if they can help you? Will you look up and look to him who loved you so much he died for your sin, defeated our enemies, rose again to give us new life, and will return and reign in glory forever? Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me pray. Father God, this is an incredible moment in the nation of Israel, and they failed to learn the lesson. They didn't see it. They saw it, and then they didn't see it. They forgot. And Lord, we pray that we can so often hear these things, and yet we forget. We, we live as if our problems are bigger than you. And Lord, I pray you would teach us what it means to cast all of our anxiety on you because you care about us, to look back to the cross and be thankful, to look forward to eternity and be thankful, and in this moment, to say, Holy Spirit, thank you, you are with us. And in our hearts, teach us to trust, teach us to be thankful. So Father, I pray for those really going through tough times in this place right now. May you use your word to strengthen them and Lord, for all of us, may we keep looking to Jesus when life is hard and remembering his love and his power. In Jesus' name, amen.